This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, lots of great news from the TFR Violation Reduction Department. But not such great news from air show events around the country. And a couple of items from aircraft manufacturers that are really interesting with implications for the future. And a redesign of AOPA's website to make it easier for you to navigate and fly. Dave, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. All right, so leading right off, our number five story... Uh, this is something we don't hear often. In fact, it's been plateaued for many years, a big reduction in TFR violations. That's right, Ian. Since 2009, TFR violations have dropped by about 50%, and AOPA is getting some kudos and a tip of the cap from NORAD. So why, uh, why do they think we've helped, do they say? Well, you know, <laughs> put me on the spot for that one, Ian. But uh, I think one one reason might be that a lot more people are aware of the TFR restrictions, and certainly they're all graphically depicted on our own AOPA website. And I think pilots are reading up a little bit more on that, and they're doing their homework before they fly. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think uh, it's taken a few years uh, for us to catch up in terms of information and finding where this stuff is and, and getting it just as a, as a habit to make sure that we check these things prior to flying. And also, you know, the, the president's traveled less than, uh, than President Bush ever did. That's true. Obama has traveled less uh, in the past eight years. But as election season cranks up even a little bit more, we need to be very aware of these uh, elected officials and the folks running for election, you know, traveling. And a lot of times they use GA throughout the country, too. Yeah, that's true. And so they come to smaller airports and... Uh, I know the folks at NORAD who um, have responsibility for patrolling these TFRs, they've done a great job with outreach. They're at all our fly-ins, um, and they really feel like they want to be sort of education partners, making sure that we're aware of these before we go flying. You're right. And in fact, Admiral William Gortney, he's the outgoing NORAD commander, and he thanked AOPA and Mark Baker for the association's successful efforts to reduce the TFR violation numbers. Yeah, that's great. So I guess moral of the story is uh, we're in the right direction on those TFR violations, but uh, keep checking before you fly and, and keep an eye out for them. 
Yeah, I always do that myself. It's a typical routine uh, for me before I go flying is to go to the website, check the TFRs. I look at them graphically mm-hmm. for you know regionally, and then I you know hone in and zero in on exactly where I'm going to go because you never know, and it's always good to get a great uh, briefing before you take off in case something pops up. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So. Uh, another thing with briefing, you know, we talk about uh, it's one thing we do for safety and uh, not such good news there lately, unfortunately. Um, lots of uh, accidents from different types of GA flying, air shows, non-air shows that have made the news. That's right, Ian. I'm sad to report that just yesterday uh, we had the Thunderbirds and the Blue Angels uh, both having crashes on the same day. These are two high-profile military demonstration teams, and the pilots are at the top of their games, no doubt. Yeah, it's uh, sad to hear. It is. And uh, one of them occurred right after uh, an Air Force salute at the Air Force Academy, and the graduation ceremony was attended by President Obama. The pilot ejected successfully from a Thunderbird aircraft and was not hurt. However, across the country, in Nashville, Tennessee, a different story. One of the Blue Angels preparing for that weekend's Tennessee uh, air show was killed when that airplane crashed right after takeoff near the Smyrna airport. Yeah, that's that's terrible. And, and, you know, I'm sure by the time that folks listen to this, we'll have more details. But as it is now, it seems like the F-16 pilot, I guess they're saying uh, preliminarily, maybe had an engine failure. Uh, but they're not saying much about the Blue Angels jet. You're right. And uh, the Thunderbird pilot, you know, they had just done this echelon flyover, and that's when all the uh, graduates throw their caps in the air, and yeah. the wire services were there, and they visually documented that. But about five miles later, that plane came down. But what the story that I wrote and what I read online elsewhere was that the pilot had already configured the plane for landing. Hmm. So I guess it was a little bit lower and a little bit slower, and that was that was quite successful, and that is a testament to how much training they do. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But uh, unfortunately, a couple others uh, that we've seen. One I know you tracked uh, from your from your old hood and down there in Atlanta. I did at the DeKalb Peachtree Airport's open house, and this is an event that brings a lot of community members to the General Aviation Airport in Atlanta, and uh, that particular airport, PDK is known as the second busiest airport in Georgia. They have uh, an open house. Families are there. There's an air show. And unfortunately, there was a fatality there at the end of the air show, and that is still being investigated by the NTSB and others at this point. So we don't have much more to report on that. Yeah. And then today, actually, as we record this, uh, George Perry, the senior vice president uh, in charge of the uh, Air Safety Institute, he's going up to Republic up in New York on Long Island because they've had a string of stuff since the beginning of the year. Most recently, this um, this Werber that uh, that crashed in the Hudson uh, just over the weekend, and pilot lost there, unfortunately. Yeah, it was a P thirty P forty seven Thunderbolt, mm-hmm. right? And that's a that's a World War II aircraft, a vintage aircraft. The pilot actually had a lot of experience flying those type of aircrafts, and I want to say it was from uh, the museum out in Farmingdale. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, it's uh, I, I you know there's rumors that there was a photo shoot or something going on and who, and who knows I mean they'll find out but uh, I know George's message is just going to be um, we'd like we do in a lot of these cases uh, that the safety outreach is there you got to think about what you're doing uh, because these things matter and people pay attention um, and the the Hudson in particular I, have you flown that corridor before I haven't flown the corridor but I don't know if you recall a couple of weeks ago I was on the Hudson with America's Cup sailing boats. That is a treacherous strip of water. Yeah, it is. And it's um, it's a really cool thing to do at least once, and I feel like everybody should try it at least once. But by the time you're done, you, you're, you look back and you think, 
man, if something happens, you're going to get wet because there's just no place to go down there. And you are right down uh, along with the buildings. And it's, um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's nice to do and nice to see, but I don't know if I do it regularly. Let's put it that way. Were you a little tense before you started that flight? And how much how much preparation did you do for that? Yeah, I mean, I've done it a couple times for different reasons. And um, it's not terribly hard, honestly. I mean, they've cut out the Class B um, to make a really nice path for people who need to go north-south. Um, you just follow a couple of basic procedures, including um, communicating on a common frequency and, and uh, doing position reports and that sort of thing. And so it does take some prep. But if you're used to flying in busy airspace, it's really not that difficult. It's uh, it's just this idea of emergency landing sites along the way. They are limited, and so I, I think people need to consider that before they do it. True, there's not much uh, not much out there to land on. And the other thing that I did notice, one day when I was on the water, there was very, very little wind and a low ceiling. The next day, it was super high winds, really finicky, really tricky. And for pilots, you, you, know, you do have to keep that in mind because there also was another pretty high-profile Cirrus crash out in that area several years ago involving yeah. a baseball player. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, well, in, uh, in, in terms of safety, you know, obviously the FAA is charged with that. And so they're always thinking about ways they can increase safety. And something that they've uh, thought about, actually from an industry uh, participation standpoint, came together. And we've got these new airman certification standards. And, of course, this is all about trying to uh, better the testing process for making pilots and hopefully increasing safety. Um, and AOPA was a part of that. They co-chaired the group that uh, helped come up with the standards. And so this is all new. And if you're taking a flight test or if you're thinking about going for a new certificate or rating, this is the way it's going to be from now on. The PTS is dead. So we need to really retrain our own thought processes. And when we're doing our reviews every couple of years and when we're flying, when we're flying with instructors, we need to coach ourselves with some of the new terminology. We need to probably grab some of the new syllabi that are available online. In fact, several are available for free downloads. Yeah, that's true. That's absolutely true. So, you know, the, the, I would say the, the knowledge test is what actually started this whole um, ACS. They, they call it the ACS. Um, process and that was to make a standard for the knowledge test to improve the knowledge test um, but now they've got this uh, the PTS it includes I would say a more comprehensive view of a pilot so the PTS which went into a lot of just very s- specific skill based stuff right so it was like uh, steep turns are 45 degrees and 100 feet plus or minus yeah um, the PTS includes all these knowledge things and risk factors so there's a debate about this and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. Do you, that, think, do you think that this is going to make us into better pilots, or do you think we're going to have to just study more and, and just get a great grade on the test and just then just learn from there? I don't know. What do you think? I I always thought that, uh, and, I, and I think I uh, ascribed to this theory, that getting that, that private pilot certification was the jumping-off point. And that it truly is the license to learn. We say that here at AOPA, and we've had other instructors say that, and John and Martha King say that as well. I think that's for real. I think you, you know, that's your good, basic starting point. And then after that, it's a little bit more seat of the pants, learn and, and, and while you're doing it kind of a thing. It's hard. I mean, it's kind of hard. People that don't grow up in a real busy airspace have a little trouble talking to controllers. Mm-hmm. I don't have that problem. I learned how to fly in Atlanta. It was pretty busy. Yeah, right. And uh, now you also have a, a, a variety of experiences teaching people. You have rotorcraft experience mm-hmm. as well as fixed wing. How do you think your students are going to grab onto this? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. I, I think in a lot of ways, it just 
sort of organizes stuff that was already there. Um, you know, they make the point, uh, those that were on the industry group, that the the beginning of the PTS, I don't know if you remember, had those special emphasis areas. This is stuff like land and hold short, right? Right. But uh, the examiners who have to come up with this scenario for the flight test, um, they could input those special emphasis areas anywhere they wanted, and there was really no guidance on that. And so the the ACS, part of what it does is it just organizes that stuff so that land and hold short is a, let's call it a risk factor or a knowledge area associated with takeoffs and landings, which is pretty obvious, right? Uh-huh. So that's where you put it and when you're when you're getting your certification. That's where you take it. Yeah, that's right. And so in a lot of ways, I think people are going to look at it just as a more comprehensive guide, both for the training and for the testing. Um, you know, they did test it. Uh, they, they did some sample groups and they put people through check rides using the ACS and they say it won't take any longer and that uh, necessarily it, it's not different as, as much as it is just uh, putting sort of pen to paper and making sure that everyone's under the same standard. So I don't know. Um, it's I, more it's more organized is what you're saying. It's yeah. got a, a definite be, definitely a little bit better flow, a little bit more modern, uh, you know, probably takes in consideration some of our modern technology. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, that's a great point because, you know, the um, like I said, the knowledge test is what started this. And as part of that, immediately they threw out all these just terrible, terrible knowledge test questions like, uh, what's the height of blowing sand? And uh, <laughs> What about volcanic ash? That's always a good one. Yeah, right. I mean, all these sort of gotcha questions, they're gone. Um, they, they deleted hundreds because there was no standard behind it. And people were just sort of, people who were writing the questions were just sort of going for it on, the, you know, on their own time. So I don't know. I think, uh, I think ultimately it will, it will be a good thing. And I'm looking forward to it. Um, but, uh, but it is something we're all going to have to learn and, and become familiar with. And speaking of learning and becoming familiar with it, maybe our members ought to take another look at our website, which was recently redesigned and organized better to serve pilots. Have you? Uh, ha- what are your experiences with our new website, Ian? You and I have lived that dream for the past few weeks. Yeah, we have. I mean, uh, look, as, as somebody who um, gets to, I guess, write stories and, and uh, you know, work with people who take photos, I think it's great because it shows that stuff off so much better. Um, you know, you get these nice full-frame photos, and, um, and I think the stories are a little easier to read, and the content is really nice and prominent. And so in, from that respect, I think it's great. We, um, we do excited. a good job with our photography and with our with our articles, very newsy, and uh, and I think that the association wanted our our pilot members to have an easier time planning their flights. That's right. Experiencing the joy of flight, mm-hmm. learning about where to go fly, mm-hmm. and these are all easily accessible now with vertical drop downs. Right there's one yep. for go fly that has everything you know about well. About going to fly, yeah, all the all the planning stuff, and then uh, our, our one that's near and dear to our hearts are the news and the news and media column. Mm-hmm. And that section is our one stop shop for photography, videography, yep. for ALTW, our weekly uh, TV news program, plus our stories that we write on spot news events and things that are coming up. And we highlight. Different thing, different aviation events around the country, and cool people and schools. Yep, yep, all that stuff. That's right, and that's uh, the yeah the key into the magazines and, and all of our content. And uh, following up on that, we have a training and safety drop down, which mm-hmm. is very helpful for all of our AOPA Air Safety Institute and Pilot Information Center uh, information, yep. which is 
just a cool thing to do. If you, if, if our members haven't really taken some of those quizzes, let me tell you, it's taxing. <laughs> I, I like it. There was one, there was an Our IFR fun. quiz up uh, yesterday, and I, I failed it miserably. But, <laughs> but that's okay. I'm an IFR student. Hey, so there allowed. you go. You had an excuse. That's right. Right. We've got another drop down for community, and that's where you can share your love of aviation and find out about uh, cool aviation events in your own neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, our advocacy uh, function, which is another drop down on the homepage there, and that's really where you can get the latest uh, information up to date from Washington as well as state legislatures around the country. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think it's part of the the value of the membership. Um, we always have support there and, and able to help folks, whether it's, you know, joining and renewing or magazine issues or advocacy, things that they want to express or whatever. But that, that extends to the website. So if uh, you're trying out the new site and uh, maybe you can't find something that you know is there and... Uh, and you need help, it's like all you got to do is pick up the phone or send an email and, uh, and we'll direct you right to it. I have done that myself as a member even before I got here. I used that 800 number. I called up here, talked to the Pilot Information Center. They were extremely helpful, very knowledgeable. And there's just, I mean, there's hundreds of years of experience here that really goes a long way. Yeah, yeah, that's right. All right, so uh, top couple of stories are about aircraft manufacturers. Uh, we're going to talk first about Air Tractor. And uh, an interesting, I would say, acquisition that they made recently. Those guys uh, are known for their agricultural airplanes. And so they have now entered the UAV market by buying a company called Hangar 78 UAV. And they make a model called the Yield Defender. What do you Hmm. think about that? Well, let's see. So if I'm an ag pilot um, and, and I see that, Air Tractor, you know, one of the tried and true brands in, in ag aviation has bought that. Am, am I worried about my job? I don't know. Uh, what do you think? Well, you know, I think there there is a case to be made that you probably should not be worried about your job, and and I think that there's no way that these uh, that the UAVs can hold like 800 gallons of spray material yeah. at this point. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think. You know, there's a compliment there. Um, UAVs can go out in advance of the aircraft. Uh, well, I should say the manned aircraft, right? Um, and uh, and do field surveys and decide exactly where it is they have to spray. I mean, the ag industry is incredibly technologically advanced. I think far beyond what most people realize. I was surprised to find that out. My, my buddy uh, in Atlanta does a little bit of that in South Georgia and uh, Leonard Harris. And he was telling me about GPS and yeah. coordinates. And this is even before GPS was cool. Yeah, right. It's amazing stuff. And so I think this is just another tool for them. Um, it's a way to complement it. And for Air Tractor, it's a way to diversify. Um, so, okay, another question for you. The guy who flies the drone, is he a pilot or is she a pilot? I'm going to say at this point they need to be a pilot. Yeah. And I've had a couple of my friends ask me about that because they're interested in photography. And that's one of the key points right now that this very well might change in the next month or so. But right now, I, I classify them as a pilot. And mm-hmm. I really think what might be lacking, Ian, is that as a pilot, you and I have pre-flight checklists that we do, not to just, just to our aircraft, but for ourselves also to make sure I am safe, if mm-hmm. you remember that. But uh, I think you need to do those pre-flight checklists. We don't want to have people getting hurt accidentally. Um, and the, the, the little aircraft, that, I mean, they could actually be bigger aircraft that are UAVs, yeah. but that could hurt somebody if you're not careful and if you really don't have that safety aspect embedded in your brain like a pilot does. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think especially when you get to a certain weight or um, application or however you want to classify it, I mean, 
to me, it's like whether there's a person actually on board the aircraft or not, uh, the person manipulating, I mean, they're a pilot. They have to operate in the airspace. They got to know what they're doing. They have to they have to learn kind of the, the rules that all of us do. And so, yeah, I, I think uh, absolutely those people are going to be pilots. I think that you just brought up a really interesting point about airspace. And we do have to share the airspace with a variety of different aircraft, even right now. Yeah. And there's the alphabet soup of airspace for pilots to remember. But with the UAVs, you know, we gotta we gotta be even more aware. I think even when we're operating at low altitudes for takeoff and for landing in general aviation aircraft and rotorcraft, we need to be very aware that there might be other people sharing our airspace that don't know the regulations. Yeah, and might not be as conscientious as we are. Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, hopefully going to change over the next couple of years as they come into the community, but uh, but I agree. I definitely agree. Um, have you heard much about the modeling industry, the RC model flyers, and how they're dealing with UAVs? A little bit. I think, um, you know, that's, that's tough for them because it feels like the traditional um, RC flyers don't necessarily consider themselves maybe as the same type of flyer as a UAV, but uh, but I don't know. I'm I'm not in that. So a friend of mine um, was talking to me about that uh, just the other day, and Rusty was saying that really the the a modeling association has had sort of a internship type relationship with pilots that have done RC modeling for years and are, you know, RC flying for years where they would have an, an older, more experienced flyer hmm. help a younger hmm. uh, person just coming into the, or a less experienced person just coming into RC flying. Yeah. They really had this real uh, like mentorship, basically. very, very much so yeah. like a mentorship yeah. and passing on some of the do's and don'ts and safety aspects. And hmm. also I had no idea, but some of those aircraft can cost like eight or $12,000. Holy cow. Yeah, man, go figure. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that might be where that particular association is uh, a little ruffled yeah. by what's going on with uh, with you know seven or eight hundred dollar drone quadcopters that are coming on the market. Yeah, and I do know that we all need to be very cognizant that a lot of people are still learning. Yeah, that's right. So uh, that's hey, that's a great segue for the uh, the f- top story. Talk about still learning, new pilots, Icon aircraft, the A five. Um, I think everyone's a little excited about this, but there was some news in the past couple of weeks that, um, well, maybe we'll temper our expectations just a little bit. That that light sport aircraft, of course, is amphibious, if I'm not uh, you got mistaken. It. And so the idea, I think, was to bring a whole bunch of new pilots into aviation. And that's a shot in the arm that we desperately do need, and we embrace that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But they, I think they might have uh, started a little bit too soon, a little bit too fast, and they had to pull back a little bit. Yeah, so um, what was it, 150 uh, layoffs I think they had? That's right. Yeah, and this is just at the beginning of the production cycle, and so um, it, there was kind of a joke out there. They they classified it as a production slowdown. Somebody said, well, you haven't really produced much, so how can you have a slowdown when you haven't done that? But uh, but whatever, we'll, we'll take them for their word, so a little bit of production slowdown. And then um, one of the big things was this contract. Their contract was scary. Yeah. Did you read it? It I read it. It was, how many pages was that thing? It was like 40 pages. Unbelievable. Yeah. But they rolled that back a little bit too. There was a a nice uh, bit of squawking done by pilots and also by AOPA because we followed up on what they did. And, you know, we try to look out for folks and we're just, uh, you know, taking a fine tooth comb to some of that. And they heard what we said. Yeah, it's it's good. I mean, I'm really glad that they 
listen to the feedback and adjust it. And um, I think I think they probably heard from a lot of customers about it. Um, but it's good. And you know, I ultimately I think people uh, have felt like some have been a little too harsh on them. And I, I think everyone wants them to succeed. Uh, I mean, new airplane is a great thing. Um, it's just that you know, I, I Kirk. And uh, and the folks there, they like to they like to shake it up, right? They think of themselves as disruptors, and so people, I think, naturally look with a skeptical eye sometimes when that happens. That that contract was a little bit over the top, but I, you know, and there was a lot of debate online about this. A lot of pilots do understand and and were for some of these different measures mm-hmm. that Icon had suggested, but then there were some that were really onerous, and one of those was. What would happen if you, as an aircraft owner, sold your aircraft? Yeah. And so Icon put some pretty heavy restrictions on that. Yeah. They also put some restrictions on how you could learn how to fly one of the aircraft and mm-hmm. where. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, well, how would you do that if the aircraft is manufactured in the West and you lived in the East? Yeah. And so there were just some questions about how to make all that come together. Yeah, life limits for the aircraft and everything yeah, that, else. Yeah, the so. life limits changed uh, with the latest contract right. uh, revision. That's right. That's right. Which I think was a good thing. I mean, you know, uh, the helicopter industry is is used to life limits and, and mm-hmm. you know, some higher end GA stuff. But uh, for most people buying a two seat LSA, it's like the idea of a life limit is uh, completely foreign. So it I, is. And uh, you and I were talking about rotor blades and the uh, the life limits yeah. on some of those the other day because you used to have a rotor blade in your office yeah. there on display. <laughs> An old chopped up one. Yeah. Yeah. So that I mean, I, w- I was very curious about the life limits on that icon. It's a sexy looking airplane. And I, yeah. and I do think that people will jump to that. And, and it would be great to have more people embrace aviation and it just, ha- you know, just be fun. But yeah. You still have to learn how to fly. Yep. You still have to learn some of these new standards that you just mentioned a few seconds ago. Yep. So uh, yep. there's a lot more to it, but uh, hopefully they're lowering uh, the entry and making it easier for people to jump on board. Yeah, and uh, you know people are definitely excited. Um, at Oshkosh last year, I was at the uh, the Corn Roast, which is the seaplane pilots. They do a, a kind of a benefit on Thursday nights. Usually, this Corn Roast is good fun. Oh, and yeah. they, they raffle off some stuff, right? Uh-huh. I think you were there actually. Did I you was come there. by? It That's what, right. One uh, didn't Bert Rutan make an appearance? That's right. Yeah, and he was yeah he was funny. Um, but uh, I remember they they raffled off an Icon ride. Uh, were you there when they did that? Oh no! What, you know what? how much? So this is like. And then keep in mind, this was August before a lot of people had gotten a chance to fly the airplane. It was. I think it went for eight hundred bucks just to get a ride. Just to get a ride. They were that excited about. Yeah. it. Yeah. So it's like people want this thing and they want to try it. And and I will say, you know, there's people have said, oh well, you know, they've gotten this these glowing reviews and everything else. From everything I've heard, it is the real deal. It is an awesome airplane to fly. It's great fun, and it's like, and they nailed it in terms of the engineering. So now they just need to be able to build the thing, execute on that on that brilliant idea. And I've got my fingers crossed, and let's see what happens. Yeah. Okay, so you had an awesome experience a couple of days ago, uh, flying kind of a with around the uh, the snowbirds. So near, I, I'll say near the snowbirds. Okay, all right. So tell me all about it because I haven't I haven't gotten to hear yet. This was a really uh, interesting event. How it came together, Ian. First of all, they performed the Canadian snowbirds are a military demonstration team from Canada. All the pilots are active military, and they're at the top of their game, like our Thunderbirds and Blue Angels are. They performed what I like to call an 18-wing salute to America. (laughs) They flew by Washington, D.C. They started at the Nationals Baseball Stadium and ended over the Pentagon. Mm. Nine airplanes. That's why 18-wing salute. There you go. And they ended up at the Udvar-Hazy Museum, which is adjacent to the Dulles 
Airport, mm-hmm. which is uh, the coolest museum I've right. ever been to. It is a great museum. And they have full motion simulators in there. There's my favorite plane, the Blackbird in there. Oh, yeah, right when you walk in. That's, Fantastic that's awesome. place. But back to the Snowbirds, they have started figuring out how could they uh, – visit Washington, D.C. just months ago. Negotiations started with the FAA, with the local airports, and with the Department of Defense. And they elevated it to a very, very high level just to get permission to do a flyover. Hmm. It almost didn't come about. Hmm. The weather was really bad for, if you remember, about four weeks up here. Yeah, it was. So when the snowbirds came, they brought in some fair weather, blue skies, and they pulled it off. Awesome. So they, uh, they did the aerial flyby. They landed at the Hazy Museum, and I got a chance to speak with some of them. Hmm. And they are true aircraft aficionados. The aircraft itself is really cool. It's a Tudor 114 aircraft, side-by-side seating in a single-engine jet. Hmm. Have you been in one? No, I haven't. Um, they look a little bit like our T-37s, but the, uh, yeah. They are cool aircraft, and I'll tell you, decades ago in Atlanta, I got to fly right seat. Oh, really? In one of those planes. That's awesome. It was really neat. And a very, very interesting ride. Uh, single seat, jet, like we said, ejection seat, everything. It's the, the full meal deal. But they modernized the cockpits a little bit. They love that aircraft. Part of the reason why they're so successful is that they love that aircraft, and they perform what they call an aerial ballet. It's almost hmm. like a dance. Hmm. And they can have six jets fly through the middle and a couple more on each side, uh, Major Yannick Gregoire told me. And they just keep coming. They hmm. keep coming at you, more and more aircraft. So for people attending an air show, it's a, it's a beautiful event. It hmm. really is truly an aerial ballet. That's cool. And so now tell me, you were, uh, were you in a helicopter, I guess, kind of chasing them? Is that the deal? Yeah, we were in a helicopter uh, out of Manassas. And a tip of the hat to our general aviation helicopter friends out there at American. Mm-hmm. So we uh, were flying by uh, the Udvar Hazy Museum. We couldn't get permission to go into the D.C. freeze zone, although that was our hope. But the the snowbirds flew underneath us. They had a, an echelon arrival. They landed three by three. And it was spectacular, even from a helicopter, just a you know half a mile away or so. Yeah, that's awesome. So, were there lots of jokes about like the Canadians invading and all that kind of stuff? You hey, think? what you mean, eh? <laughs> hey? There were uh, there were actually I asked uh, asked Major Gregoire about it, and he said he was he was the lead pilot. He was number one. Okay, and so he got a chance to look down. All the other pilots. I uh, had to look at him. Yeah, right. Because when you're in formation, that's what you do. Yeah. So he said that all he had to do, he did all his homework ahead of time, and he could enjoy the sights, the Washington Mall, the Monument, Jefferson. He took it all in. And he said that uh, that he could see that people down below had filled the streets. Oh, wow. Now, I asked him, could he see if they were looking up? Yeah, right. <laughs> so I was figuring they were. Maybe it's just a daytime D.C. thing, yeah. Right. They were, they were uh, trailing their smoke, and indeed, actually, people on the ground were, in fact, looking up. Uh-huh. So it attracted a lot of attention. It was right before the Memorial Day weekend, so the timing was really good. Yeah, that's cool. That's really cool. You know what I think? What's I that? think that they just wanted to come here so they could go to the museum. <laughs> so they made it all it's happen. It's worth it. I mean, I would, you know, if, uh, well, maybe they do, but if I was going to say, if, if Canada had a museum as good as Urvarhaisi, I would go up there and check it out because it is a it is a good museum. So. It really is good. And folks traveling to the Washington, D.C. area, they really ought to 
spend some time there and check it out. Anyone that's an aviation buff would enjoy it. Yeah. And the full motion simulators in there, even when my daughter was like five years old, mm-hmm. we went to one of those full motion sims and she just loved it. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. That's great. So, uh, Dave, our, our guest this week, I got a chance to, uh, I work with him all the time, but I got the chance to actually uh, talk to, uh, for a long time, Barry Schiff. Barry Schiff is someone I've looked up to and have read his material for for decades, really. Mm-hmm. And I think he's flown how many hundreds, hundreds, of hundreds of airplanes. And yeah, we should say aircraft because he likes to fly them all. So uh, we had a really uh, broad conversation about kind of his life, what he, what aircraft he's loved, mm-hmm. maybe not loved so much. Um, he's had a fascinating career, both for the airlines and then uh, flying all kinds of cool GA stuff. So we had a really good talk. Are we going to talk to him further about that and pick his brain and see what his favorite aircraft were and maybe find out what he's going to write for us in the next couple of yeah, weeks? Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, so we'll talk, we'll give, we'll, yeah, we'll be teasers for what you'll see uh, coming up over the next couple of months. And he, he's got some pretty uh, high profile aviation friends as well. Yeah, he does. In fact, yeah, he's, uh, he's gotten lots of interesting interviews for us just actually by hanging out at the airport. He just, uh, it's amazing who you meet hanging out at the airport. There you go. So, Barry, I want to start at the beginning. Tell me how you got started flying. Oh, <laughs> well, the beginning was uh, my career as a juvenile delinquent. I was a uh, hanging around with the wrong guys in junior high school, and the principal of my high school, junior high school, called my parents in and told them that uh, they should send me away for the summer because uh, I was hanging around with the wrong crowd, and he didn't want to see me get uh, too screwed up in life. So my parents decided to uh, ship me off to visit my grandparents in New Jersey when I was 13 years old. And they put me on a North American Airlines DC-6B that whisked me in the middle of the night from Burbank to Wichita to Chicago Midway to LaGuardia. And throughout this flight, I kept looking out at the wing. And I knew that it uh, kept the airplane up in the air, but I had no idea how. I mean, it didn't do anything. It didn't wiggle. It didn't flap. It had no motion at all. And yet, here it was, suspending us in the atmosphere. So I, I just got curious about it, went to the small library in my uh, hometown, New Brunswick, New Jersey, when uh, I got there, and... Uh, got a book called The Science of Pre-Flight Aeronautics, which I still have. I checked it out, but I never returned it. I'd hate to figure out what the uh, overdue bill on that would be. So that book just fascinated me uh, about how airplanes flew and what made them work and so forth. And I knew that when I got back to uh, Southern California, my home, uh, I was going to have to go to a local airport, which was Santa Monica Airport, and see if I could uh, find out more about flying airplanes. And I went out there and started hitchhiking. I literally stood on a taxiway uh, with my thumb extended, and uh, I got kicked off a few times but uh, kept going back. And finally someone did give me a ride in a Bonanza, uh, an original V-tail Bonanza. And, uh, wow, what a thrill that was. And I decided this is for me. And so... uh, Contrary to my parents' uh, resistance, I learned to fly anyway just by working and uh, building up time. Now, I think there's been lots of talk that the culture is gone, that the whole hangout culture is gone. Kids can't be at the airport anymore. What, what do you think? Is it gone? Well, not like it used to 
be. Uh, you try to bring a bicycle on an airport these days, and you're likely going to get arrested by the airport gendarmes, and there are fences to keep you away. Back in the day, back in the uh, mid-50s when I learned to fly, uh, the airport was wide open, and uh, you could explore and ride your bike around and uh, and get jobs washing airplanes without worrying about unions and minimum wages and things like that. It was a whole lot easier, I think, back then to uh, build a career uh, as an airport kid than it is today. That, Having said that, I, I think that if the desire is there, if the determination is there, uh, people can do today whatever they want. And I don't think that aspect of our society has come to an end. So now, like a lot of people, you learn locally, but um, you made your way to the Big Iron. And so was that a practical matter? I mean, was it just that you wanted to make a living flying and that was the sort of the most logical way to do it? Or uh, was that always your goal to fly the big jets? I always wanted to fly for a living ever since I started flying. But as I uh, collected my ratings and built my time and experience, the airlines weren't hiring. So there, there didn't appear to be much of a chance of having a career with the airlines. Unless you came out of the military, the few people who were hired were not from the civilian market. So I, I stayed in aviation as a youngster. I, I actually began my own aviation publishing company back in uh, 1959 when I was 21 years old. It was somewhat successful. Um, it was purchased uh, from me by uh, Jefferson. They bought my company. They thought it was at least good enough for that. Uh, more I found out later to get rid of me than anything else. And about that time, uh, as luck would have it, the airlines began to hire. And boy, they began to hire with a vengeance. And I decided, here's my opportunity. And uh, I put in applications for various airlines and got immediately hired by TWA. Uh, the next 34 years spoke for themselves. Yeah, great. So um, what did you start on? What, what airplane? I started on the Connie as a uh, first officer. And I was there for about, oh, five or six months. And uh, the expansion was so rapid because they were hiring so many people in that era that I became uh, uh, qualified on the 707 shortly thereafter. As a matter of fact, um, I was really lucky. And, and it, luck and being in the right place at the right time has more to do with it than anything else. I got checked out as a captain uh, at TWA after only having been there for four years and never looked back. It was uh, had an incredible career. And guys who were perhaps even more qualified than me might have gotten hired a couple of years later and had much uh, uh, lower seniority positions, and they never had that kind of progress on the list. So it was really lucky, and uh, I, I, I thank my stars. Yeah, wow. Uh, luck really does have something to do with that, I guess. So uh, from the 707, you moved up from there, right? Yeah, well, I flew pretty much everything TWA had, uh, 747, 757, 767. But my favorite airplane uh, was the Lockheed 1011. I thought it was the finest machine that had ever been built to fly. And, and it was just a gentleman's airplane, a nice, big, roomy cockpit, quiet, and it had an auto flight system that allowed us to uh, make Category 3B landings in uh, weather that was uh, a zero ceiling and 300-foot visibility. And the only reason you needed 300 feet of visibility was so that you could uh, 
find your way around the airport after you landed, and even that was difficult. Yeah, wow. So uh, tell me about the first time you did that, uh, in the real world at least, not in the sim. That that must have been incredibly uh, stressful and hair-raising. Um, it, it was uh, not so much uh, hairy at all because we had done it in the simulator so many times that you knew exactly what was going on, and you just knew that you could rely on the system, and you knew what you could do if something went wrong. There was always a, a way out that was not particularly challenging. You just could just punch out and go. Uh, as a matter of fact, I wrote about what it's like to make that kind of an approach uh, in a magazine you might have heard of, uh, AOPA Pilot, I think it's called. And <laughs> I described my first uh, Category 3B landing there, and it was a thrill. It was in Paris at uh, Charles de Gaulle Airport. And the weather was as advertised, zero ceiling, 300-foot visibility. And we never saw the ground or any part of the ground until after the main gear touched and the nose started to come down, and then you could see a few of the centerline lights. It was uh, just like a movie, just like in the simulator. It was perfect. Wow, that's uh, that's incredible. It must have been quite exciting. So, um, you know, I think one thing that sets you apart, Barry, is that a lot of people, they... They get the airline job, um, they fly so much, it becomes, you know, a job. Um, they get up, they go to work, they fly, they come home, and, and they really kind of, they lose the passion of general aviation, they lose hold of it. But you never have. Um, you've always stayed with it. Uh, why, why is that, and what has it meant to you? Well, you know, there are different kinds of airline pilots. There are those who become airline pilots because it's a job that pays well and has uh, good working conditions, and and it's just a job to them. Uh, but I would say uh, a large percentage of airline pilots really love to fly. And for people like that, and I was certainly one of them, going to work was, was a joy. I mean, I, I could not wait to get on a flight to go to Honolulu and, and have dinner and a Mai Tai over there. And uh, back the next day, uh, what's better than that? Uh, it, it was a joy to fly these marvelous airplanes, um, but it wasn't as uh, free and as uh, refreshing as flying a general aviation airplane. There you can do what, whatever you want to do uh, in many ways that you can't do uh, on a jetliner, so you didn't have the discipline to worry about. Uh, you could go where you wanted to go, not where the airline told you to go. And general aviation has always been my first love. Uh, I, I, today, I, I feel much the same way about it. Uh, put me in an Aronka champ, and, and I'm happy as a lark. Anything that flies, I'll take it. So even after all these years, after that first trip when you were a kid uh, to the East Coast, you haven't lost that passion or, uh, or interest in flying, really? No, not at all. Um, you know, I'm, I'm aging now. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm just about to turn 78. And I still love it as much now. I'm still as enamored with uh, flying light airplanes as I ever have been. Uh, and, and I like to pose myself, uh, present myself with new challenges. Um, I love to fly airplanes I have never flown before. Uh, one, because it's challenging. Two, because it's educational. And three, because uh, you guys let me write about it. <laughs> and I love to do that. It's uh, it's one of my great joys in life. So what is it? I mean, you know, a lot of people, they might get 
you know, maxed out or maybe a little tired of flying or um, kind of lose uh, lose the energy. I mean, obviously, challenge is, is one thing that keeps us going. But what about you? I mean, what what's kept you so involved for so long? Well, I don't know. I guess it varies from person to person. To me, it's been a part of my identity. And to not fly and to not enjoy it is something I just I can't imagine. Um, if people feel maxed out about flying and, and they're getting bored by it, maybe it's time for them to quit or set for themselves new challenges, new things to do. Um, I notice there are people who... Uh, like to touch down in uh, every one of the 48 states and uh, set forth that as a challenge or fly around the perimeter of the United States or fly to so many different airports over a period of time. But you have to have the incentive. You have to have the desire to want to do these things. There are a lot of challenges in, in general aviation that you can set for yourself and in, enjoy them. Uh, I, I can't imagine getting maxed out and bored. That's something that's not in my vocabulary. So what sustained you over the years? I mean, what about some of your best flights, your most memorable flights? Well, gosh, uh, there have been too many best flights. Uh, and I guess, you know, you, you look upon the uh, Hallmark flights, the uh, landmark flights, uh, you know, your first solo and getting your licenses and uh, getting checked out in different airplanes and of course, the first time I flew as an airline captain, my first flight where they actually let me solo the airplane with a crew, uh, that was pretty remarkable because here was this general aviation airport brat, and that's what I was, who you know, got weaned from Aronka champs being given a Boeing 727 jetliner. Uh, and, and here I was for the first time going without an instructor and without another captain. That was a thrill. And, and I just could not believe they, they let me do that. <laughs> I, I kept pinching myself. As a matter of fact, um, a member of the first flight, I was sitting at the gate at Los Angeles getting ready for departure, and the mechanic came into the cockpit. He's behind me. I guess he brought up the logbook for the airplane that had just been signed off. And he calls out. He says, hey, Skipper. And, uh, you know, I just kept going about my business. and. And with a little more insistence, he says, hey, Skipper. And then I finally realized he's talking to me. I'm the captain. I could not believe that I was the captain of a jetliner. I mean, you know, when you start out with an Aronka Champ, 65 horsepower, and then you got this big aluminum tube with three jet engines and a hundred and some odd passengers in the back, it's a thrill. And and I just hoped and prayed that the people in back didn't know this was my first solo. Huh, yeah. <laughs> I know. Can you imagine? Yeah. Yeah, folks, the captain's doing it for the first time. I think they would take it the wrong way. Of course, by the time you get there, you've had so much training that uh, uh, it, everything comes in second nature. Yeah, I suppose it doesn't feel like anything's really in doubt there, uh, does it? No, not at all. But great flights, uh, maybe the flight in the U-2 where uh, they let me, uh, they gave me a high flight out of Beale Air Force Base and got to write about that and going up to 70,000 feet or more. And uh, uh, the, they actually let me fly the thing. And, uh, wow, that was a thrill. Uh, but there's so many uh, flying a B-29 from the right seat and uh, uh, tasting what history was like, even though no one was shooting at us. It, it was a thrill just to do that. 
uh, getting a type rating in a DC-3, that's a historical thrill. But uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't mean to sound corny, but every time I take off is kind of a thrill. And getting back <laughs> is even more so. So is takeoff your favorite time of the flight? I mean, I, I know this is a thing for some people. Some people say it's uh, the landing. Some people say it's kind of cruising along, being able to look out. But for a lot of people, the takeoff and the power and the acceleration is, is their biggest thrill. Well, I don't have a favorite part of the flight. I guess it depends on the challenge. Um, you know, if you conquer a great crosswind, uh, whether it's during the takeoff or during a landing, that might be the best part. Or sometimes the best part is, is, is watching a sunset on a summer evening while smelling the hay from the open cockpit of a biplane. I mean, there are so many uh, ethereal, sensual aspects to flying that are so thrilling in so many different ways that uh, it's, it, I, I can't generalize and say the best part of a flight is the takeoff or the landing. It's there's always something that happens during a flight that's kind of a thrill, and you never know when that's going to happen. So the L-1011 is your favorite airline. Uh, what about GA airplane? I mean, if you could only have one, if you could only fly one airplane for the rest of your life, uh, what would it be? If I could only have one airplane, I would feel deprived because, you know, each airplane has a different purpose. And um, you can take up a, you know, a B-36 TC Bonanza as a great airplane for going cross-country, but it's not all that much fun to fly. Uh, Super Cub is a great joy. Um, uh, an open cockpit biplane is a lot of fun. I don't know that I'm capable of picking one airplane. And maybe that's why I like to fly so many different ones, because I get to taste uh, the pleasures that each one provides. Okay, so you can't commit to a favorite airplane. Um, what about um, flying characteristics, uh, low and slow? Or, I mean, what is it about uh, certain airplanes, the way they fly, the flying characteristics uh, that you feel like make a great airplane? The perfect airplane to me is one that flies the way you expect it to fly. And it's designed so that it gives you great pleasure. Uh, if I had to pick one airplane that, to me, is the most beautifully designed uh, airplane, general aviation airplane, and that would have to be the CI Marchetti SF-260. That little airplane is a joy. It has beautifully harmonized controls. It feels wonderful just to manipulate it, uh, to maneuver it. It's aerobatic. It's cross-country. Uh, good cross-country airplane, its only limitation is it doesn't carry much of a load. But it looks like a little P-51 with a nose wheel, and it flies that way, too. Actually, it flies better than a P-51 in terms of its uh, quality of flight control handling. So obviously, flying has been a major part of your life, um, kind of your identity, but you have this other part, which uh, many people know you now only through the pages of a magazine and, and I suppose video, um, but you've been doing it for so long. You mentioned the publishing company. Uh, what what was that about? How did you start it and uh, and why? Well, it was interesting. I was uh, teaching ground school. I guess I was 20 years old at the time. And I was teaching ground school at Santa Monica Airport. And uh, at that time, we were using low-frequency ranges and um, fan markers along the airways and radio uh, facilities that we don't have today. And I was trying to describe to my class what these various radio aids to navigation sounded like. And one guy raised his hand. He says, I don't get it. I don't understand what 
what you hear when you fly through the leg of a four-course range, for example. And I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll get a tape recorder, and I'll take it up in an airplane with me during the week, and uh, I'll record the sound, and you can hear what it sounds like next week uh, at class. And I did that, and while I was up in the air, I recorded other sounds of navigation, uh, what the localizer identifier sounded like, what it was like to fly through an inner and an outer marker, things like that. And I played the tape at class uh, the following week, and out of my 21 students, 17 wanted to buy copies. And I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's something here. And the long story short, I wound up producing uh, LP recordings uh, of various aspects of flying, communications, and things like that. And... Uh, there was an audio-visual course that people could buy as LP records, and they were sold all over the world. We did rather well with them and created some other products as well. And uh, that's when Jeppesen decided they liked what we had done and, and made an offer to buy the company. And that's when the airlines were hiring, and I said, you got a deal. Now, as any writer knows, I mean, some stories are great and some, um, well, not so great, but... Um Obviously, over such a long career, you've had a lot of great ones. Uh, so, what about you? I mean, uh, when you look back on that on that uh, book of writing, what are you particularly proud of? Stories you thought you got right, maybe stories that you thought uh, made a difference, or or that you really just enjoyed reporting on. Well, there was this uh, editor at uh, uh, AOPA Pilot Magazine. His name was Max Courant. And he was, I think, the first editor of the of the magazine. The magazine didn't come out in the late 50s or something, early 60s, I forget when. And uh, he asked me if I would write an article for Pilot Magazine about how we went about making these recordings. And uh, I said, sure, I'd love to do that. And uh, apparently the, the article was somewhat successful and uh, people enjoyed reading it and he asked me if I'd like to write something else, and I said, sure, I'd love to write about such and such. I, I think I wrote about celestial navigation in a light airplane, which is pretty esoteric. And, um, and that's how my, my magazine writing career began. And uh, I've written for every editor Pilot Magazine has had. The stories that uh, I, I most enjoy writing are... are as, as, as I think I've said, are the ones that teach people something that is useful to them. Uh, but the ones that I enjoy the most, the ones I enjoy writing the most, are the ones that have a strong personal touch. Um, for example, most recently, is I wrote about how we recently lost our dog, Wojcik, uh, a little Havanese dog, and how I tried to fly the next day and simply realized that I was in no emotional state to turn the key of the ignition on an airplane, and I, I decided to cancel the flight and go home. And when I can write something that is emotional, impactful, and still teaches a lesson of safety of flight, then I know I've done something well. And I didn't expect this to to get the kind of reaction that it did. But I've gotten more than 100 emails about that 
particular column about uh, how we had to put our our little boy to sleep. And, uh, it was emotional, and yet it 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 also um, spoke of a lesson that we could all abide by. Yeah, wow. It's um, well, so other family members, uh, the pets. I mean, that's that's always a great subject uh, for a columnist and. And I know you uh, do that occasionally, especially with uh, your son. Well, yeah, I, I could not be prouder of uh, Brian, who uh, I taught to fly, started to teach him to fly when he was uh, 14 years old. And he has developed the same enthusiasm for aviation that uh, I had. And not because I wanted him to, but because he just felt the same things that I did. And uh, you know you you can't you can't do a better job of of raising a kid than to find that he has taken up your values not because you wanted him to but because he felt them and he has become in my mind's eye a really great pilot uh, I've always held myself in high esteem I think I'm a pretty fair pilot but I think he's a better one. I've always felt that I'm a good teacher, and I think he's a better one. So I'm really proud of him, and uh, he teaches me at times, and that's a great feeling, and I've written about that. Yeah, and I know after um, deregulation and 9-11, you've said that the career really isn't what it was uh, for you and that you wouldn't even necessarily recommend it these days, but yet um, here he is um, doing it uh, kind of his own way. Well, he has, he has earned his position. He has gone through a lot of difficult times because the airlines are not what they used to be. And he has to put up with a lot of things that I did not have to put up with. Um, The airlines are not as glamorous and glorious as they used to be. But if you love to fly an airplane, I can't think of a better thing to do. So, Barry, um, for your time today and uh, for all your writing that you've given uh AOPA members over the years, um, thank you. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks for the time. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. Dave, I had a, a great time talking to Barry and uh, had fun chatting with you today here at Hangar Talk. I enjoyed spending Hangar Talk with you, Ian. And I think you got some cool stuff on the horizon. You told me something about a Cherokee pilot. Yeah, we've got a guy who uh, bought a Cherokee for a thousand bucks and. Uh, completely redid it for not much more than that so that ought to be cool uh we're going to be talking to rod machado at some point and uh and some others so awesome yeah i bought air coup for eight thousand and put 30 in it so oh, no i'm in a different <laughs> oh, <no>. boat <laughs> that's terrible <laughs> thanks for coming to hangar talk i appreciate you all right see you